Our lives are made up of countless opportunities. Some of them we snatch instantly and enjoy their sweetness, while with others we let them wither on the vine. But one of the unfathomable truths about taking advantage of an opportunity is that it rarely turns out exactly the way we had imagined. The truth of that can be seen in the life and career of photographer and musician Jason Hamacher, whose path resembles anything but a straight line. Along with being a photographer and a musician, he's also a physical therapist and a self-appointed social anthropologist. And not surprisingly, each of those roles has played off the other. A mistakenly heard word during a telephone call led him on a search for music sung in the ancient tongue of Aramaic and which was only sung in modern times by the Syriac Orthodox Church. He thought it would be a relatively easy thing to get a recording of it. He found out otherwise. When I ended up uh, getting on an email originally with the Archbishop of the United States, and he was the one that told me, we don't have a recording of the music you're looking for. We've got something similar, but not what you're looking for. And I was just like, well, how do I get a copy of what I want to hear? He's like, well, we don't have one. And I was like, well, I'll pay to import one. You know, whatever. It can't cost more than $100. He's like, no, we just don't have one. And I said, you mean we with a capital W? Like, you've been doing this 1,800 years, or there's not a, there's not a, a recording that's accessible? He's like, no. He's like, do you want me to make one for you? And that's the genesis of this. So then I go with the idea of recording every chant that they have, which is like at least a month of straight recording. That pursuit led him on an adventure that took him repeatedly to Syria over 10 years, where he not only recorded the music, but also documented the experience with his camera. But like this adventure, his photographic career has been shaped by the oddest of circumstances that became invaluable opportunities. My first major job, this all because this is all within about four months of each other. I I was one of those photographers that photographs events for one of the glossy DC magazines, DC style. But then the Washington Wizards dance team, the NBA team, needed a calendar shoot and they asked Washington style for everyone's portfolio. I had no headshots, no formal headshots in mind. I had headshots of villagers, <laughs> you know, and they chose mine. And I was like, uh, what? And so I called David and said, yo, I just got a job shooting the calendar for the Washington Wizards. He was like, what? I was like, yeah, I, I know. Uh, can you help me? <laughs> We'll talk to Jason about how the many hats he's worn have played an integral part in his many successes, and how a shoulder massage of an elderly religious leader opened a door that might otherwise have been closed. This is Ibadi and X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. There's a, there's a theater... Um, Repertoire Theater in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. So they were looking for 
artists of color to exhibit work there because they're trying to make an outreach. And um, at first, the guy who invited me to do it thought, you know, I would just take work that I'd already created, right? street photography and exhibit it there. But I just didn't think it would be sort of a good fit, but right. I still wanted to do it. Sure. So I came up with this quote-unquote fine art concept, right? Mm-hmm. Did a whole proposal around it, describing what it was going to be. It kind of kind of riffed off a, a play by August Wilson, Gem of the Ocean, uh, that's going to be exhibited there. Very sort of elaborate. And I thought, oh, this would be kind of... And then they went, oh, great. Let's do it. And oh, then right. trying to put all this stuff together, especially, <laughs> it's just... <laughs> you know, I, I know all the mechanics of doing it, but just trying to find some people that I can rely on to. Yeah. That, I mean, I only got the people that I need. I got the third and last person that I needed today. <laughs> and I had to reschedule the shoot from last week because I had nobody. Oh, my gosh. Because it's hard when you're not paying people. Right. You know, because I'm not. Right. And I'm just like, just going, hmm, that was a real smart idea of our next to come up with this <laughs> concept. Doing something you've never done that relies on the participation of other people—real, real good move. <laughs> but you know, I just sort of—I just sort of pressed on, and I've got everybody, and um, it's going to involve me working in a studio, working with lights. That's cool. Camera tether to a computer, all of which technically I know about. Right. But thankfully, I have uh, the person who's handling the lighting for me is, is really adept at it. So I just have to tell them what I need so I can just focus on the models in terms of eliciting what I need and then just sort of figure out um, what we need to do to get the luck that I'm going for. And right. then I have to put all those. It's basically going to be a series of composites. Mm. So I have to sit down in Photoshop, yeah. which I haven't used in a while. I don't, I don't know how to use that. Photoshop at all. I used to be real adept at it before Lightroom came around. Right. And now it's like, oh, okay, now I got to reintroduce myself. <laughs> and luckily, it's not that complex. Yeah. So it's, it won't be very, very difficult. It's just like, just hopefully I can get as close to my vision for it, because I need to get the images to the theater so right. they can approve it. And then uh, we can hand it off to the people who are going to print it, because it's already in the program. How, bi- <laughs> How big of prints are you thinking? I, they're going to be, I think, 30 by 30. Nice. Three of them. Yeah. Three um, 30 by 30s, that's it? or Just three, yeah. Just three yeah. 30 by 30s. Because the space is very limited. Right. So that's, being able to say it's done is going to be the biggest accomplishment <laughs> for me. Yeah. You know, I'm not so much worried about it being exceptional, jaw-breaking, you know, <laughs> right. work. Right. You know, it's right. just like, it's just the fact I set off for this idea that demanded that I stretch myself and that I did it. And even when it looked, you know, it looked its darkest. I right. still was sort of able to sort of press through because at, at some point I was like, am I going to be able to pull this off? And well, I was just I, like, mm. I mean, I think that's the best place to be when you're trying to do anything creative. Yeah. If you're always doing something within your means or, or, or one of the things that I think is, is, is fascinating is coming up with the concept on the fly. Like, ah, let's do this. Yeah. And then it works. And you're like, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> I need volunteers. I, I, I need that, a lighting tech. <laughs> I felt that way about my first book. It's like I came up with, spent all this time coming up with a book proposal, you know, research what it's involved in sending a query letter, get it out. <laughs> they say, yes, uh, send a book contract. And all of a sudden it's, oh crap, now I got to write it. <laughs> and I procrastinated for weeks 
before I've procrastinated I for years. <laughs> I have to start my next week. Oh, you're writing a book. I have I have a, like a bunch of projects in production about, you know, about my time in Syria that just yeah. have been like slow moving. Partially for timing, partially because I do a million other things. But yeah, just like, yeah, you're quite the Renaissance man. I got to say, <laughs> man. it's just the combination of things that you can, you know, you can uh, declare as a title. Uh, is <laughs> sometimes it's a little. I mean, it's always uncomfortable to be honest. It's like, what do you do? It's like, oh, well, I, I question, yeah. and then I choose depending on how I think someone's going to respond. Mm-hmm. I'll either say I do all kinds of stuff, or yeah. if that doesn't work photographer or you know producer yeah like you know it's just it's kind of weird because i have to be comfortable with whatever i'm gonna Mm -hmm. my gut like anytime someone asks i'm like oh i'm a drummer (laughs) (laughs) i haven't been like full-time professional drummer in almost two decades you know but that's like you you kind of at least i relate to myself as what i started at Mm -hmm. or what i started with creatively and it's the same thing with, with, you know, my friends too. Like I just, it's the whole first impression. How did I meet someone? What did they do then? That yeah. is what I think of them now. It's just like. Yeah. I used to say, oh, I do this, 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 and this. And it's like, oh no, they don't, they don't care. They don't want to, they don't want to hear all these different hats that I wear. Just pick one. Right. It doesn't really matter. Right. Probably never going to see this person again. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Yeah. I end up backpedaling all the time. Where I'm like, oh, I do this. Like, oh, really? What do you, well, you know, well, here's what's really happening. And then, like, it just turns into something. Yeah. When I was in high school, we traveled um, across the country. And I was going to Sarah High School, which is in Garnita, largely uh, black and Hispanic high school. Now it's uh, co-ed. But back, back in the day, it was all males. And we traveled across the country. We had a teacher, you know, Anglo, Anglo guy. And then but the rest of us were about eight or nine black kids. And wherever we stopped in the country, everyone was always curious, you know, because we would go through a lot of white communities, especially yeah. in Utah. There's a story there I could tell you. <laughs> right. But um, basically, they asked, well, you know, are you guys basketball, basketball team? And I got so irritated at the question, I just said, no, we're a polo team, a water <laughs> polo team. Because I realized the answer didn't really matter. Right, right. You know, they just wanted to understand why are these, right. these group of kids, black kids, Doing around here, right? You know, and it's like water polo, and no one ever contrary. <laughs> it's like, water that's polo actually kind of amazing. <laughs> my so my wife is Chinese, so okay. my kids, my kids have grown up closer with their cousins from my wife's side than from my side. Mm-hmm. So my younger brother has five boys; they're all two years apart. My older brother has three boys, a couple years apart. So when they were little, my daughter thought the word cousins was a reference to small groups of white people <laughs> so so we'd be in the mall and my daughter would be like look cousins i was like no 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 oh my god no they are not your relatives they're like no they're they're my cousins like they're not your cousins cousins refers to someone that we're blood related to yeah. it's got nothing to do well luckily that's an innocuous word enough that if someone <laughs> overheard it they wouldn't be like right it could be something a little more expensive but <laughs> but you, you, you know, you started drumming when you were a young kid and you just, and it was always fascinating to me when I talk to people who have a variety of creative outlets, I, I usually find that they really don't uh, compartmentalize each of the outlets in the ways that people who are looking at you do. 
right? That it's just a different manifestation of yes. the same desire and need to be creative. And, and yeah. I guess that you kind of feel that way as well. Yeah. Well, at the Focus on the Story Festival, where we met, that was the first time I ever spoke solo about being a photographer. Okay. Ever. It's always like a combo of, you know, playing drums or being a photographer or running an art gallery or whatever. Mm -hmm. I got really excited to be like, oh, I'm going to talk about my camera use, which, which was a really defining moment for me, to be honest. Because what ended up happening was from a very early age, I recorded my first demo recording mm -hmm. when I was 15 and lived in Florida and then recorded my first produced 45 seven inch when I, I'd been 17 for a week. None of these were, you know, crazily commercially successful or anything, but I started the, the production process young. And so being a drummer in the band and being kind of the band manager, the guy that just naturally I would call everyone and talk to everyone and just get the shows. Music is no longer a hobby. It's just like what I do. Yeah. You know, like I'm in a new band now. We played our first show a couple of weeks ago at the Swedish embassy, you know, like <laughs> wow. it just started, you know, we have a record out. It's on everywhere, you know, and, and the whole point was that it was supposed to be this kind of like mellow local band, but everyone in the band's professional musicians. So no one can just kind of do it. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I gotcha. And so what ended up happening was... And part of it just involves some tragedy. The band that I was full-time with back in the late 90s was a band called Frotus, and the other band was called Battery. And I had a girlfriend that I was getting ready to propose to, and she was diagnosed with terminal cancer and ended up dying mm. in 10 months. And then both <sighs> bands broke up, and I was just like hard reset. And I got like a – it wasn't a regular job. It was – I worked at a – front desk at a medical spa in the wow. high-end suburbs of Washington, D.C. Just a friend of mine was like, you need to do something. Like, come work with me here. I was mm. like, that's terrible. I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where I met my now wife. But we were moving offices, and there was a camera there. There was a Minolta manual camera. I don't remember the model number. All mechanical. There was a light meter. <laughs> but mm. then that's it. No auto, anything. And they told me to go, just go donate it. Like, can I have it? And at the time, uh, my roommate was David Holloway, the ph you know, photographer. Yeah, mm -hmm. And so he was like, oh, you got a camera? I was like, extremely embarrassed. I was like, oh, I found <laughs> it at work. You know, I don't know. But secretly, from doing all the tours as a musician, I was always drawn to photography. And I actually would always try to get David to go on me with on all my Crazy adventures. Before I was going to Syria, I'd go to Peru, like to the depths of the yeah. jungles and always try to get David to come with me. And being a Getty photographer, he always had like a real job and couldn't come with me. Yeah. And so what ended up happening was I had this Minolta camera in my room and I couldn't figure out how to turn it on. I had like some like lift oh, and turn and press yeah. or whatever. And then someone came over and showed me how to turn it on. And then... My grandfather passed away in Florida and I was going down and I was just going to spend like a couple of days by myself in the car. And I bashfully asked David, I was like, hey, uh, I figured out how to turn on the camera. <laughs> Any tips? 
wow. on, how to, on how to use this thing. And he was like, I've got two tips for you. Light meter off the palm of your hand and use Fuji 400. Take some out of my drawer. And so and that was it. But he, he set my camera up for me. And then like, and that was kind of the beginning. But what that, what, what it, what that filled for me creatively was I had a hobby. Like I had something I could learn about. Like I was, I'm hyper ADD. Mm-hmm. I just like dove in head first to learn everything about the mechanics of how a camera works. Like I'd give myself practice runs on how to actually do everything except for actually develop film. I've never actually de- developed anything in the dark room, but I kind of, Refound myself through using a camera, and then I started just going to all these remote places on the planet, like National Geographic style, but by myself. <laughs> How important was it that it wasn't a, a collaborative creative outlet as opposed to being in a band? Part of it was that was the most freeing thing of all, because when everything's collaborative, you don't ever get to have your own decision. Which most of the time works out, you know, like that tension creates the music, mm-hmm. you know, with any band that like you just watch behind the music. And that's why everybody falls apart at some point, <laughs> you know, that's why we fell apart. And so being able to kind of find my inner voice through this solitary practice was really exciting for me, you know, like. I had a job, like, I, you know, this day spa. The job was over at 7. I'm a night owl. I was like, dude, I'm out of work at 7. I've got, like, seven hours <laughs> before I'm going to go to sleep. Wow. So I would just go hit the streets of D.C. practicing depth of field, just all at night by myself, just kind of re- I don't know, introducing myself to my creative side as opposed to just like my organizational management side. Right. And do you feel like you had lost that by the time you were like doing all the management stuff and all the business side of the, it's the not, band? It's not necessarily lost, but it's more balance. You know, you write the record or you write the songs. Recording it is, it's an adventure. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then... Then that's over, and then it comes time to go on tour. And what photography did for me was I booked myself photo tours, you know, like just going anywhere in the world and taking pictures. That kind of satisfied that adventure that I found by being in a punk band. And then the creative component of it was kind of figuring out the eye. I had a friend that went to the Corcoran school for photography and what's something that always stuck with me she asked i was one of her subjects for a photo for an assignment once and she had to choose a subject and take a photo from six different angles to come up with six different views of the one and for whatever reason that always stuck with me and so yeah i don't know i just I fell in love with it. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of being a musician with, with drums, there's so much that you have to, I don't want to say learn, but there's a, a certain degree of intuitiveness 
in terms of, so you can make it natural, so it can be sort of an extension of who you are. It's not just the, the mechanics of hitting the snare and the cymbal at, right. at, at the right time, right? So there's a lot of effort that's involved in trying to get into that sort of natural space, yeah. uh, and, and, and as well as, as a photographer. But I'm wondering whether the experience of going through that creative process with drums, how that may have affected you when it came to taking photographs. I'm not a super technical drummer, meaning I know what I'm doing. I know about the technical sides of drumming, but I am not technically proficient enough to pull off all these extremely hyper complex rhythms. Like mm -hmm. I'm way more John Bonham Led Zeppelin. Hit That's hard, <laughs> hit hard, hit open. But when you sit down and actually try to listen to it, it's kind of complex, but it doesn't sound complex. And so, to do that, it takes a keen songwriting understanding. Like, you've got to really understand who you're playing with, right? And there are some drummers that are like extreme technical nerds that all they do is talk about their drums and everything about the drum. And, and they've got five drum sets. And I just, I get for my drums, I have my stuff's custom made for me. I have it made for what I do. And then that's it. I don't care. I, I hit the drums super hard. I don't care if someone borrows them. I mean, I throw my drums sometimes at people in the audience. Like, who cares? Oh <laughs> you know? But I take, like, so it's kind of a combo of all of that. And my photography is kind of the same way, which is I totally understand. I, like, infatuate over what camera I need to use. And when I say, I emphasize need, not want. Okay. <laughs> you know, like... I don't know anything about mirrorless cameras. I haven't gotten to the point where I need to understand that yet. Like it may be coming. <laughs> I don't know. But from a, so from a technical aspect, I learn enough to make a decision about what camera and what gear I want to use. And then that, it just kind of ends there. I don't keep getting gear for the sake of having something. I was like, you know, I used a Canon FM 2N with two lenses for like a decade, um, <laughs> you know, like a, a 28, two like 1.4 and a 50 millimeter 1.2. That's, that's all you need. Yeah, yeah, you know, like I was like, seriously, maybe like two years ago, I, I'm now like when I switched to digital, I became a Canon user since I had basically had to start from scratch, you know? And I same thing with that. Like I had two lenses forever. I took like 90% of my photos in Syria on one lens, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. but kind of circling back to the, the comparison between the drums and, and the, the photography, I'm extremely utilitarian, you know, like I understand enough about what I'm going to use to express or show what I'm trying to do. And then it ends the the gear and the the thought process behind what I'm going to make ends. Then my focus on making something begins, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no, it does. And it's the same thing with with my music and with my my art at the same time. You know, what's interesting with your with your project Lost Origins is the fact that you're able to combine your love of music, audio, photography, all in into one which is i think the fact that you can 
find a way of sort of merging all them all of those i don't know where the physical therapy comes in there <laughs> you know, the massage therapist excuse me how that fits in there but i'm sure you're subject you should, so you know what so it's so after so this is a really interesting thing because it's one of the things i talk about the least because it doesn't seems like it doesn't fit that much yeah. but but being a massage therapist weaves all of my worlds together because that's so? where i meet so many people oh, in dc okay Example, this band Dillinger Escape Plan was going on tour. They were going on tour with the metal band Megadeth. And I'm very close with the band Dillinger Escape Plan. The guitarist gets hit, tears his rotator cuff, asks me, hey, are you a licensed massage therapist? I was like, yeah, why are you asking if I, what? Of course I am. And so I went on tour with him, massaging him, but I brought my camera with me and took photo, had like insane access to all these heavy metal bands on stage, off stage, on the bus, behind dinner, everything. This is in 2005. This is right at the same time my whole Syria project was kicking in. Yeah. And so I wrote to three magazines that gave my old band, Decahedron, our most recent positive reviews and just said, hey, I'm going out with these bands. I'm going to have my camera. I'm going to be with them every day. Can I write articles for you? And they all said yes. And so I started writing articles and had that, but it was through the back channel of being a massage therapist on this tour. And then actually when I went to Syria, one of my massage clients was like, hey, there's supposedly a really amazing synagogue in Aleppo. That's all he said. But I remembered it. So when I was actually there, someone was like, yeah, it's, you know, almost impossible to get in. And then I ended up meeting someone that could get me in. And that changed my life. That that got me a job as an explorer and a photographer for a museum in New York. That got me a huge photo exhibit on the synagogue. It just kind of, yeah. it's not a direct, you know, massage plus this equals whatever. But it's definitely weaves in and out of it there's actually <laughs> there's a guy making a documentary on all of this serial work that i did and i gave him a bunch of tapes like uh videotapes of my first trip and he's like there's a photo of you and he's like no there's a video of you massaging some like really old guy on the <laughs> floor in an apartment and i was like oh dude <laughs> and so the world expert, the world expert on the Aramaic language, Jesus's language. Mm -hmm. I had an interview with him in his house. And instead of bribing him with dollars for information, he'd be like, he's like, you're a massage therapist, right? He's like, okay, now work on my neck for a second. And then I'll tell you everything. <gasps> Wow. <laughs> so he was like, he'd lay down. And this guy's like, he's like 90s. He'd like lay down. I'd have to work on his neck that my friend Josh was really, he's like, this is so amazing. <laughs> but how, but how'd you get into that to begin with? The massage therapy. Yeah. It comes back to, I took that job at the medical day spa yeah. kind of against my will. And there was this Romanian massage therapist that worked in this place. She had worked in the hospitals of Bucharest for 20 years and just had all these amazing stories. And I never even thought of massage therapy, nothing. At this time, I was like 25. But going through the loss of my girlfriend, I was hypersensitive to the healing worlds and the na you know natural healing and all that kind of stuff. And her stories were just fascinating. So 
my time at the medical spa, I was only there for like a year and a half. It went in and out. And I kept on like going on tours. Like I wouldn't, I got hired to go on tour in a band playing drums. And I got hired to sell my friends shirts on tour. And both of these tours were in Europe. And I came home and I was like, man, I have, what am I doing with my life? You know, like I don't have no idea what to do. At the time, massage school was not that expensive. It was a couple grand. And then equipment's not that much. You know, I made a calculated decision. Okay, I'll spend X thousands of dollars learning this skill. If I don't like it, I'll pay off everything and then find something I like. And then being a drummer lent directly to being a very skilled massage therapist. Like all the stuff you work on with a record producer, like right. consistency, like that directly translates, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So... The massage therapy has underwritten all of this. Wow. And so, you know, when people ask me, well, how do I become a professional photographer? I'm like, well, you have to define professional, but it would be great if you got a paying job that would give you the leeway to make the decisions to make the photos you really want to make and then see what happens. Yeah, because if you just go in to make a living as a photographer, thinking that you're going to get the chance to spend more time doing what you love doesn't often work that way because you spend so much time just trying to sustain the right. business and the money. Yeah. I think it's like that with any creative endeavor. It's like that with music, especially, you know what I mean? Like any of these things that were people, I, <laughs> I hosted, it was 50 educators from around the country came to DC. I set up a private exhibit of my Syria work at, at my gallery. And, you know, just, I purposely didn't caption anything so people could look, digest, be curious and then have to ask, yeah. right? And one woman was just like, I, you know, I've got some students. What would you tell them about becoming a professional photographer or record producer? I was like, get a job. <laughs> but it's just, it's a series of compromises to figure out how to become financially independent based on your creative output. Very, very, very few people, their creative output is equal to public consumption of creativity. That's right. And so if you're aiming for that and you don't fit that, which very, very few people do, then you have to change and take the photos other people want. The, I want to talk about the Syrian project, and I want you to explain to your listeners what that is, but I want sure. you to start from the fact that that whole project was inspired by you mishearing something over the telephone. <laughs> so... Back in 2005, in this time that we were kind of talking about, you know, the bands had broken up. I was kind of in between music and I had done a couple of these trips like, to the depths of Turkey and I had started getting some very basic photo jobs. My first major job, this all because this is all within about four months of each other. I, I was one of those photographers that photographs events for one of the glossy DC magazines, DC style. But then the Washington Wizards dance team, the NBA team, needed a calendar shoot. And they asked Washington style for everyone's portfolio. I had no headshots, no formal headshots in mind. I had headshots of villagers, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and they chose mine. And I was like, uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> and so I called David and said, yo, I just got a job shooting the calendar for the Washington Wizards. He was like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, I know. Uh, can you help me? <laughs> 
He's like, no. <laughs> He's like, I'm gone on a shoot. I was like, do you have lights? I have never used lights ever. Mm-hmm. He's like, go get my lights in the basement. Get two with the umbrellas. Just set them up like you can see on the internet. Turn one to two thirds and one to full and just adjust your aperture from there. I was like, okay. But so that was in September, right? Mm -hmm. And this whole thing with the Syria misunderstanding happened just before that. So I started getting my ground as a photographer, a professional photographer. So what happened was the band breaks up and I want to do a rock orchestra with as many friends as I can find. And basically write songs symphonically instead of pop music style, you know, like Beethoven would or something. And my friend and I come up with the idea of let's find an ancient vocal tradition of some sort, anything. It doesn't have to be religious, but just any sort of chant or vocal pattern that we could figure out how to rhythmically write something to. We'll email it back and forth, and by the end of the week, we'll start formulating some idea. And my friend called, super excited, and was like, hey, I found this amazing chant from Serbia you really got to check out. And I 100% misunderstood him and thought he said Syria, which made me think of this book where this guy finds this ancient chant. And so that original misunderstanding was over 15 years ago. No, 14. It was 2005. And that led to me kind of going down the rabbit hole of this extremely rare ancient vocal tradition, one of the earliest forms of Christian chanting on the planet. And so uh, through a long series of events, I ended up getting permission from the Syrian Orthodox Church and the Syrian government to go and make these chant recordings. And so I went to Aleppo between 2005 and 10 numerous times with my camera, with recording equipment, sometimes a portable studio, sometimes just the Zoom collection, and photographed the city over years up into the war and recorded all sorts of different uh, ancient religious chant traditions. And then it all ended with the war kicking in. And so where things are with that entire project. So I went to record just this ancient chant. And then over time, being a trusted artist and not a journalist, numerous organizations, including the Syrian government, was extremely supportive and highly enthusiastic about my vision for the city. And one of my biggest struggles for the longest time is, for example, before I get into that, I was really shocked by the level of inclusion and the level of coexistence between all the religious factions in the city of Aleppo. And I kind of felt misled that that it was this, like the Middle East in general was this kind of really contentious place where no one gets along. And this conflict between the Sunni and the Shiites. And, yeah. yeah. And it just maybe existed deep in the culture, but I didn't see it at all. At all. And so... One of the things while I was actively going was finding out, is this something that I'm looking for and finding? Or is this an accurate portrayal of how this works? And so I spent, you know, years talking, traveling, and like, even though I can't speak Arabic or Armenian or any of the languages from the people inside Aleppo, 
I can communicate and a lot of people can speak English as well. And I found that almost everyone is fine with each other. And it was uh, to, to illustrate it even further, one of the albums that I released was Armenian chanting from Aleppo. The, the city of Aleppo is the city that basically real, rebuilt the Armenian population after the Holocaust of World War I. And I didn't know any of this until I started producing the record. And one of the foremost scholars on the community is a, is a priest in New York. And I went and we were talking. I was kind of sharing my experience. And his response was, he was like, I was so angry when I went to Syria the first time. And I was like, okay. They were going to the great mosque in Damascus you know, one of the holiest spots for Islam in the entire Middle East, like ranked up there with Mecca for some. And so he was in his vestments, his official religious gear, and he was going with the Armenian patriarch. And so this priest from New York starts taking off all of his vestments to just go in regular clothes. And the the patriarch was just like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm, you know, out of respect, I'm taking off my religious clothing. He's like, no, 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 no. We are official religious guests. We are expected to come in our religious vestments. And he was like, what? And he said that he felt so misled. This guy was in his 60s, so misled. Mm -hmm. And he grew up with this little seed of resentment towards this place that was completely baseless, that he was shocked at the inclusion that he experienced at the city of his forefathers, you know, like when he came back to visit Aleppo. And so being so entrenched in the religious community, as well as like the political community and kind of everything in between, yeah. it was, it was a hyper unique experience, but it was also extremely eye-opening in a way that I never would have expected. Want to be the voice that introduces the show at the beginning of the episode? Send us an audio clip that you can record on your phone, tablet, or computer. Simply say your name, where you're from, and welcome to the Candid Frame. Say it at least twice and give us a few seconds of silence so that we can clean up the audio. Once done, email it to info at thecandidframe.com and make sure to include a link to your website or Instagram feed. Help The Candid Frame to continue bringing you great conversations with some of the world's best photographers. You can do this by supporting our Patreon effort by committing as little as $5 or more a month. When you do this, you not only help us to meet the cost of production, but provide us the time and resources we need to bring you conversations you won't hear anywhere else. Sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thank you. Yeah, there's a video where you uh, videotape a meeting of Sunni and Shiite religious figures. Yeah. Then you comment in the video that you were just so surprised to be witnessing that because everything you had heard in terms of here was mean that they were always on and that at their throats and you would never think that they would be civil towards each other in, in the same room. I mean, 
it's even more extreme than that. It's a meeting at the Archdiocese of the Christian Orthodox Church with the Christians, Sunni and Shia, held during Holy Week. <laughs> during, um, and it was just a community meeting about how they can, as leaders, and, and this is what was fascinating to me, it was the leadership doing all of this. Like, you know, at the time... Syria, North Korea, and Iran were considered the axis of evil by President Bush. That's essentially the extent of Syria in the news, was just like an addendum to this axis of evil. And then the week I was supposed to go originally was when the prof was when the Danish cartoonist oh, yeah. <laughs> did the cartoon that just incensed the entire region. And a lot of that upheaval started in Syria and people just went ballistic. And so I wasn't sure if I'd ever be able to go, to be honest. And this meeting was to basically discuss the community's behavior and how we can remain, how people can remain to work together. And it, I mean, it was, it was fascinating. Yeah. Well, tell me about the, the recordings, because from my understanding, a lot of the music that you recorded not only was ancient, but also had either gone unrecorded or had never been um, made permanent on 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 paper. Um, tell us about a little more about the music and sort of the history behind it in terms. Uh, of- sure. So so the music that I went to go the original project was I want to go to Syria and make these recordings of the world's oldest Christian chanting. It takes place in one church on the planet in the neighborhood of High Syrian which means New Syria in Aleppo. And this hyper-specific community, they themselves were refugees from the slaughters of World War I through what's now southeastern Turkey. And they were allowed to flee. They allegedly bribed a governor. The city was called, it's called Urfa. They bribed the governor with a stack of gold and they were allowed to come and they settled behind the train station in Aleppo. And so... When I ended up getting on an email originally with the Archbishop of the United States, and he was the one that told me, we don't have a recording of the music you're looking for. We've got something similar, but not what you're looking for. And I was just like, well, how do I get a copy of what I want to hear? He's like, well, we don't have one. And I was like, well, I'll pay to import one. You know, whatever. It can't cost more than $100. He's like, no, we just don't have one. And I said, you mean we with a capital W? Like, <laughs> you've been doing this 1,800 years, so there's not a, there's not a, a recording that's accessible? He's like, no. I was like, do you want me to make one for you? And that's the genesis okay. of this. So then I go with the idea of recording every chant that they have, which is like at least a month of straight recording. And I come to find out at the guy's house where I'm massaging him in between information sessions that in 1967, a scholar from Austria came with two priests and they did the entire chant tradition in a room in a chair. Just one guy specifically going over it. And those tapes have have been digitized somewhere. And then all these individual priests... They have gone through and they have made a recording of them in a boombox doing the entire, it's called, the book is called the Beth Gaza. It means treasury of chance, but there is no 
performance recording or accessible recording of any of this stuff. And so what I've learned over the years, there have been recordings of them. I was, I was originally told that there weren't, there are, but they're either locked away in academia or it's just a recording of an individual. And what I mean by that, it's fantastic to hear Paul McCartney sing a Beatles song. It's way better to hear the Beatles play the Beatles song. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so the project for me morphed. I was like, okay, I don't need to document all of this stuff. It's documented somewhere at some time. Let's get a performance. Like let's let's get the like let's let people hear how beautiful this is. You can't have one guy do all of it because a lot of it's in unison. That like if you're at a church. There's people on the left, there's people on the right, they're chanting back and forth, they're chanting in unison, there's a call and response. One person can do that, but it's not the way it's designed to happen. So that's what I ended up doing. I had two priests choose their favorites, like, give me your hits. What's your favorite thing to do <laughs> over the course of the years? Like, give me some solo, give me the liturgical necessities, show off a little bit, show me what you got. And so that was the the main recording that I did that will be out <laughs> next year okay. with Smithsonian Folkways. And so with that, and in, in this neighborhood or, or Sundland actually takes place in this, in this story, mm. there is one priest in Sundland, California, who is the fourth person that knows all of this chanting. Oh, really? Yeah. And so in February, I came out and met with him. He has a collection of tapes that he made in the eighties of every single thing, every single chant. I'm currently trying to get the library of Congress to take it, to preserve it. Cause it's, it's not just recorded. It's categorized. It's like, oh it's, God. it's, yeah. it's, he's, he's got a, a PhD. Like he's a highly educated individual and, and approached it that way, but his recordings sound nothing. It's just a different vibe than, yeah. than so, but that guy made a cookbook in 1997, a published cookbook. And so I was like, I've been working with your community for 14 years. How come no one's told me that there's a cookbook? And so he was like, I don't know. So that's been the missing component. So, so the, the product, the end product for the Smithsonian, it's a recording. It's a book of my photography of the community. Yeah. The head ethnomusicologist from UCLA interviewed the priest. That's why I was out here last February. Okay. Kind of did like a history in their own words. And then we're going to reproduce the book. And it's a cookbook. Yeah, a cookbook. Because <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's not just, it's not just, you know, if you remove the faith component out of it, there's yeah. so much culture that follows the faith traditions. It's like food, faith, photos, music. Everything like here's a complete here's a completed box of one of the world's first Christian communities ever, yeah. And so that's kind of what we're aiming for. Well, it's, it's really clear in terms of what you were trying to achieve in terms of audio. But when it came to the photography, how did that fit? What were you sort of looking for to, so, to get from that? It kind of goes by with the way that I the name I use for my company, Lost Origins. Like you know, after experiencing the death of my girlfriend, you know, literally in my arms, straight out of a movie, I find, you know, I find myself all of a sudden, you know, I, I'm not getting married. I don't have a band. The hell am I doing? And I find myself with a camera kind of 
understanding myself through photography and I'm not tied to anything like for the, like being in a band takes so much time, so much time. Mm. All of a sudden I have time. So I find myself alone around the world in these ancient communities and just, I became fascinated with modern, with modern populations in ancient contexts. Okay. Um, and it was fascinating to me. And so then all of a sudden I stumble into a recording project with the world's first Christian city, <laughs> you know, like, so Christianity started the, the word Christian started in Antioch, which is like 90 minutes west of Aleppo. The first city was Ur now called Urfa, Turkey, which is about two hours north, but it's impossible to go. Okay. And so all of like this community voted on the New Testament, like they're part of that. That's how ancient it goes back. And so it was fascinating to me to just see what is that like? You know, like, okay, like you, you have traceable evidence that you guys helped form the Bible. What's for lunch? Like, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, okay, like what music are we listening to? Like, do you really like Shania Twain? What is happening? Wow. But you know what I mean? Like, like it was fascinating to me to just see modernity mixing with extreme ancient with this heritage faith component and just see how it all mixed. And I just wanted to photograph all of it. Yeah. And so I had to get permission to do all of that from the Syrian government. So I, the first time I went, I just went as this regular tourist, no special anything. I went with, stayed with the church, just kind of viewed how everything worked and then had to come up with an official proposal and send it to the Syrian embassy in D.C. And it took months of calling every two weeks. Has the ambassador had a chance to review my work? No. Okay. Back, you know, to the day. Call in two weeks. Bam. Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Three weeks. Four weeks. And then finally, someone had read the proposal. I was invited to come and sit with the ambassador. He reviewed everything. And I was requesting to photograph the the community, but then their exile route in reverse from Aleppo back up into Urfa, which involves going through a closed checkpoint. Okay. And um, I never did it. I was like, I want to take a donkey. I want to take a train. Like, just like totally <laughs> recreate the whole process to get back up there because it's be like a day or two. Um, and at the time, the Syrian ambassador to the U.S. was a huge arts supporter he was like, I would love to see your photography. Would you come back and show me, you know, what you've got? And it's like, of course. So I came back and I made like an Apple book, you know, like a hundred page of just my first trip, which was only 10 days. And he looked at it and was like, I love this. Let's make this commercially available. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, I want to publish this book. I was like, uh, no, this is not, this is an Apple book. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, besides that, uh, this is not a good, we need more. Like if you really want to do a book on the city of Aleppo, he's like, okay, well then make one. I'm like, okay. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, what do you need to make a book? I was like, well, I need to go back. He's like, well, of course. He's like, and so we had talked about it. I never was paid and that's key. Mm -hmm. I was never paid by the Syrian government to do every, anything, but they cut all the red tape, all of it. And so I was given access to Aleppo in a way that no one has. 
almost, I, I, I can't say without a fact ever, but at least in, since the inception, since like 50 years, 60 years. Yeah. So you can't get on buildings with big cameras. Like, like I have yeah. photos like on top of buildings, everything. So I have the entire city fully documented from 2005 to 2010, like towards the apex of its modernization yeah. before it all gets destroyed. God, that must be heartbreaking to, to see yeah. what's happened there. I mean, for people who have lived there, for whom that's home, it's, it's devastating. I'm sure it's, I know it's devastating. Um, but uh, for you as well, it must be really difficult to not only witness the phys- physical destruction of the of the city, but what's happening to people, some of whom you've gotten to know very intimately. Yeah, I mean, it's it's loss. You know, I, I not to be overly dramatic, but it's this. You know, it's it's loss very similar to when I lost my girlfriend, which was you're just intimately in a relationship or spent so much time with someone or a place or anything. And that, that time and place of individual comes to represent something in your life mm-hmm. and meet, you know, so she ended up passing away from cancer. I became a photographer. All of a sudden I'm working for a museum and all these universities. I'm in this ancient city. I have almost free reign to photograph everything in the city. And so I have no limits on curiosity. Like sometimes you're like, oh, maybe I should photograph that, but I probably shouldn't go over it. That just the shouldn't part wasn't an issue. It was like, I will photograph whatever I have interest in, knowing I'm not going to get in trouble. And so that created a trust with almost everyone I met in Syria. And then to know that doesn't exist is detriment. Like it's emotionally detrimental. Like it's really, really, really hard for me. And so, you know, having this collection of images, you know, what do I do with it? Like, I I, I specifically stopped working on all of this because I did not want to take advantage of the destruction or the war or anything, because so many people want to see, like, so many people want to see, like, war porn, you know, like, What's gone? And I, I understand the allure to focus on before and after photos. But I, I just had a very difficult time doing anything that I felt would be taking advantage of the community. And so I just kind of stopped. I started, you know, I had a kid. Uh, I have two now. Like, I just kind of started going just moving on not moving on but like letting things simmer in the background and the worse things got the more in my head all of my work the significance of everything changed mm-hmm. i mean you've done books like you don't put your d level photos in a book you don't even put your yeah. b all of it's relevant now all of it the street with no one on it with crappy shadows well that's not there Put a vignette on it, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I don't know. So it's just like all my entire photo collection is now being archived and managed by the Library of Congress. Like I, I, I struggled for a long time. You know, what do I do with all this stuff? You know, like, yes, I will do my book to honor, you know, the, the path that I've done that I've been on. But beyond that okay like it's a book still like how how do i have some longevity like let's do something that's a little bit more 
lasting than just a book. And so I was looking at different archives around the around the world and you know some places in Germany and I put out my first record. It was a Sufi chant record and then I got my first interview on that. And it was huge. It was fresh air with Terry Gross. Oh wow. And that changed my life. <laughs> You know, and so I started getting all these speaking engagements all over the world. And, you know, I spoke at the United Nations in Geneva and I brought a record player and showed photos. And I started doing all these things and I started to feel comfortable because I was very uncomfortable with anything that I had done because it started off as an accident and it started yeah. off as just a audio project and it's just morphed into all these different facets and I'm never uncomfortable to not do something you know I'll always execute an idea but I am I I was very uncomfortable almost even talking about it with anyone right um and then once I did that first interview about it the I wasn't sure if anyone would care to be honest yeah you know and clearly that was an inaccurate sentiment with all of this the f it's been i'll do mostly f like audio related like the chant related discussions or interviews and i i which was the component that i had put on the back burner for so long i was focusing so much on the photo component and so now the last several years i've done photo ex i've started to exhibit more doing photos and then it took i tried to give my collection the li i tried to donate my collection to the library of congress a couple of times and then they asked me to come and speak so i spoke in the middle east reading room and this woman came up to me she's like have you thought about what you're doing with your photo collection it's like every day <laughs> it's like no one wants it she was like what do you mean i was like i cannot give away my collection of photographs from Aleppo, Syria, before it was destroyed. No one's interested. She's like, have you thought about letting us manage that for you? I was like, I have asked you three times. She's like, who did you talk to? And I was like, I don't know. She's like, come with me. She marched me over, like, through the winding hallways and sat me down in front of the, the head of acquisitions for the library. Right. She was like, Mr. Hamaker has just spoken. He has, you know, just kind of do a review. Yeah. And then even he, he was like, well, we don't normally take this type of material. I was like, look, it doesn't matter if you want to take it or not. I was like, you were the head of acquisitions for the Library of Congress. Do you have a friend anywhere in the world <laughs> that would have interest? And so, you know, we, he, he may have even been on his lunch break or something. But then, like, he actually looked into it a little bit further and changed his mind. And so... They made an exception, actually, because it's in the inside the Library of Congress. It's in the Center for American Folklore, which is where Alan Lomax's stuff is, like the you know famed ethnomusicologist. Yeah, very good company. Yeah, and like HL, like we're really close to each other. So it was like, <laughs> I was like, oh my lord! But so it was fascinating. And so he came back. We met several times. They, there's a new librarian at the library. I think it was the first African American 
woman librarian in history. And I think my collection was the first one she signed in. Oh, really? Okay. I was just like, yeah. I said, like, can we have an award ceremony? <laughs> they were like, uh, we don't do that. I said, like, can we have one? <laughs> can I get a picture? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so... Now, coming back to the technical side, none of this stuff's available online yet because I was an Aperture photo user. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, jeez. Right? Yeah. And so my entire collection, and this is before, again, like, if I was formally educated, I probably wouldn't have done this. But, you know, you, know, you can choose your file. You can either reference the file or import the file. Mm-hmm. All of my photos are housed inside Aperture. And so I had to export everything, the metadata on export out of Aperture. It's not that great. And then only two years ago, I started to use Lightroom. And so my entire collection had to be exported, duplicated. I gave it to them. And that now, this is what I'm doing actually next week when I go home, I have to organize 15,000 photographs. I'm the only person that can do it. Oh, my God. And so I have to teach myself in Aperture. Like, I don't even know how to, like, I'm confident I will be able to do this, but I just need to dedicate the time. Yeah, just take it slow. To master it. And so the good news is that book that I have, you know, it's been on the shelf forever. Focus on the story. Joe and I have talked about uh, having him publish it. And then before that, I was like, well, we should ask the Library of Congress if they want to do it as well, because... They have the collection. It would be strange if we just do it without them. And so we've had numerous meetings, and now the library is heavily interested in publishing the book. And I was just like, whoa. Wow. That's awesome. Quite a journey. But one of the things that's so fascinating to me is, so so the Center for American Folklife, they can't publish the book, but they can agree to want to publish it. Right. So the okay. li- so the Library of Congress has a publishing department, which mm-hmm. is independent from everywhere else. All the independent reading rooms and collections can then request to publish something. And so my department agreed we should publish the book. And then we went and met with the publishers and they agreed they would like to they are very interested in publishing the book. And now it's a matter of figuring out what's the narrative of the book, because the narrative has changed. Mm-hmm. Over 12 years, the stories, the photos are the same, the importance is the same, but contextualizing it to a public that now knows what Syria is. Because before, very few people even knew what I was talking about. And so one of the things that was fascinating was when we were discussing the actual publication component is I was like, wouldn't it be amazing to find the pockets of where all of the refugee communities are in the United States and do a book tour based on where all the refugees are? And they were like, oh, we could do that in a heartbeat. And I was like, that is what I'm talking about. So partnering with the library, then they can also start working with public library. I mean, it was just like... The networking component that I had never thought about, Mm -hmm. because it's like, okay, we do the book, and then what happens? People got to know about it. Like, it's like, the work never ends. (laughs) Yeah, there's always something, one other thing to do. Yeah, Yeah. you know? And and to have a partner that could help find those places or find those opportunities to go and kind of help people. Like, because the book 
and all of these things are, are multi multifold. It's like, okay, if you're mildly interested in culture, these are artifacts for you to explore. Yeah. If you have fled your country, this is what you can show your children where you were. And that's the way I photographed. Yeah. Like it wasn't just the big ones, like the monuments. It was just. No, no, it's really important. You know, and then, yeah, all, all sorts of things. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Interesting. I'm going to say my photo partner, which is something we didn't talk about. Okay. I semi-retired from doing active photography work, meaning with this huge archive and building and now running an art gallery in dc my time to actually go out and work mm -hmm. has greatly reduced and a friend of mine that lives in the neighborhood he's an architectural and kind of fine art photographer he was doing a cover shoot for one of the, the dc magazines and asked me to be his lighting tech he originally asked me to be his assistant he's like you want to assist me on this i was like what are you talking about it's like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, I'm not carrying your bag. <laughs> He's like, I need to use lights. And I, I love lighting. I love the shoots. Like, I love all of it. And so I was like, I will come help with lighting if you get this, you know, set up. Mm -hmm. And so I had never photographed with another person before, ever. I've never worked with a partner. Yeah. I've never done it with an. I've, I've never even gone out with another photographer and taken photos with two people at the same time. It's always been the solo self-cleansing, you yeah. know? And so his name's Chris Mills. We had an amazing time. We started doing it together. And so now in D.C., I'm working again. I work with Chris in tandem. We do a lot of headshots, a lot of... Uh, a lot of commercial work, but he did an exhibit at the gallery this spring. It was amazing. It was called And So Here We Are. And it was, I think, 13 large scale, like 35 by 42 landscape portraits of just nothing but trees. Mm. And it was extremely green and extremely lush. And we have another friend named Joshua Dunn who's hyper into printing and just complete paper nerd <laughs> like in the way that's it's it, the most yeah. engaging conversation i have with photos ever like and so between the three of us like uh i printed an entire new photo exhibit on this paper god what is it fabriano printmaking rag okay wow quite the name it's matte it's thick it's what they've made for 1300 years and now they made it for for like high-end inkjet yeah. printers anyway but i would say check out chris mill stuff his it's one of those things where you describe oh trees you know but mm -hmm. it's it was so engaging it was one of the more commercially successful exhibits i've done at the gallery like, and, what's, and what's the name of the gallery lost origins gallery I got voted best new gallery in Washington, D.C. Oh, congrats. That's great. <laughs> well, thank you for making time for me today. Really Man, enjoyed thanks, for, thanks for having me on. Thanks to Jason for sharing his time and story with us. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting lostorigins.com. 
And thanks to all of you who helped the Candid Frame earn a nomination in the 14th Annual Podcast Awards, The People's Choice. We earned one of 10 spots in the arts category, and we are in some very good company. Winners will be announced in late September, and I can't thank you enough for helping to make that happen. To hear and see me talk about my personal photographic process, visit the TCF YouTube channel where I offer comments on photography submitted to TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr pool. Check out the TCF Flickr pool and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My latest book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. Purchase it today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code Pirello40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks by signing up for the Candid Frame mailing list, where I share thoughts about life, photography, and keep you updated on TCF events. If you enjoy the show, Help spread the word by writing a review wherever you find and listen to podcasts. And if you write a review on a blog post, let me know and send me a link because I would really love to thank you on air. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download The Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. And if you scroll down on the app, you'll find a free excerpt of my book that you can download. We also have an Alexa app, so if you have one of those smart devices, download the skill and listen to the show that way. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarion X, and this is The Candid Frame.